Good morning. Hope you all had a happy Thanksgiving. I know we did. We had a good time with family. Um, and it's, in a way, this is also spending Thanksgiving with family as far as I'm concerned. I so appreciate the opportunity to be with you uh, as many times as I've had. And um, also grateful for your encouragement. Uh, it's, it's been a huge blessing being able to open God's Word with you. As much as I want to preach a message on Thanksgiving, I couldn't bring myself to do that. Um, for me, it's, it's hard for me to do a topical sermon. Uh, I much prefer to exegete something. So you're going to still get some exegesis this morning instead of, you know, a good Thanksgiving sermon. But I think it's still going to be relevant to the holidays because we've now entered the holiday season. And that means this is a time where we hear a whole lot of very religious imagery in our culture, in the world. So we, we hear, especially as we approach Christmas, everyone's singing Christmas songs, but not quite understanding who Christ is. And so in a world that's full of people who look like they're following Jesus, who look like they're worshiping God we find that there's really not a lot of true worship. There are a lot of people who don't understand the gospel that they're singing about and that they're celebrating to some degree or another. And Jesus also addressed this issue in a very familiar parable, the parable of the sower. And so I'm going to try really hard not to bore you with a sermon, with a parable that you've heard many times in your lives, I'm sure. Dr. Howard Hendricks liked to say it should be a sin to bore people with God's word. So I will try not to sin against you this morning. Uh, But we will look at Matthew 13. And what we're going to see here is uh, three different things. We're going to see, first of all, the distance between Jesus and the crowds. Second, we're going to see the difference between the crowds and the disciples. And finally, we're going to see the difficulty of being a disciple-maker. So the distance between Jesus and the crowds, the difference between the crowds and the disciples, and the difficulty of being a disciple-maker. And I'll go ahead and begin reading in in Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat And sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no other root, they withered away. Other seed fell along among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. 
For from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophet Isaiah was right. It is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This is God's word. There's some interesting things here that Matthew does as he tells the story. And there's some unique things. This, this story appears in Mark, it appears in Luke, but there are different details that Matthew picks up on. And based on the point of this parable, as Jesus explains it, I think, I have a theory... I'm going to test it all out on you. Uh, that what Matthew is doing here is telling the story in a way that draws attention to this purpose. And so the first detail that he tells with the story is that this happens that same day. Same day as what? Well, it points back to what happened just before Jesus went out to preach. If we back up to verse 46 of the last chapter, he's, he's in the house speaking to people, and his family, his mother and brothers, are outside. And someone says, hey, Jesus, your family's outside. They want to talk to you. Will you step out and and speak to them? But Jesus says, that's not my true family. That might be confusing. Everyone knows, you know, there's a family resemblance there, I'm assuming. Um, This is his actual mother and his actual brothers. But Jesus says, no, no, they're really not. What matters more is the people who do God's will. That's my real family. And he points to the disciples. You see, even though it appears like his family is with him, they aren't the ones doing God's will. It's his disciples. They're set apart. They're different. And so appearances are not as they appear. They're not what they seem. And so after this, Jesus goes out of the house. So he's leaving everyone behind. Everyone's still at the house. And he, he goes and he, he sits on the beach. 
It doesn't say how long he was sitting on the beach. He was looking out at the water. And the people come to him. It's interesting. He's, he's separating himself from the people. And, and once they come to him, he, he keeps moving. He moves on. He goes, and he goes out into the water, into a boat. And he sits down in the boat. He's separated from the people again. These details aren't in the other Gospels, but I think he's painting this picture. There's something different between the crowds and Jesus. Jesus has separated himself from the people. And it's interesting, if you look at some of the geography for this place, the tradition holds that the site of this parable, that's called the Cove of Parables, it's about a mile north of the mount where tradition holds that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And so Jesus gives us beautiful, long exposition of the law. It's very clear. It's very, um, very powerful. But Jesus, just a mile later, this is the last, this is the next time he sits down to teach is this point in Matthew. And he's about to give a really unclear message. But it's clear, too, that there's a purpose because this cove where he's preaching, he's led them out to a place where he can preach. It's a natural amphitheater. Scientists have gone to test it. And they say, yeah, you know, if you lined up hundreds of people on the shore, they would all be able to hear Jesus preach. So, so he's led them out there to hear him, but he's giving a very different kind of message. It's a message with a hidden meaning. And so you see, visually, a distance between Jesus and the crowds. You see, Jesus has separated himself from the people multiple times. He separated himself from his family. They're not his real family. He separated himself from the crowds in order to teach. And he, so he tells the parable... And then he says this, I always thought was a very puzzling thing. He who has ears, let him hear. As if you would do anything else with your ears. But Jesus is making a point. Just because you hear me doesn't mean you're listening. If you can hear my voice, listen to what I'm saying. This is the heart of the problem in this passage. So, I won't bother going back through the parable. We'll get to where Jesus explains it, and that's where we'll talk about it in detail. But note what happens. After he delivers the sermon, after he says, he who has ears, let him hear, the disciples come to him. And again, it just throws it out there in the story. But what would the disciples have to do if they're going to come and ask Jesus a question? They had to leave the crowd on the beach, walk through the water, and come to Jesus on the boat. Now again, this isn't, this is my theory. This is, I don't know that this is what Matthew intended, but this is, in a sense, a beautiful picture of what it means to be a disciple. You leave the crowds and come to the master. And in fact, when you leave the crowds and come to the master, we make you go get baptized. You walk through the water to get to Jesus. I don't know that that's what Matthew had in mind, but if it, he did, I don't think he could have done a better job. 
There's this distance that must be crossed in order to be with Jesus. And the rest of the crowds are, are different. And, and so now we're going to see why that is. What's the difference between a disciple and the crowds? Well, Jesus explains to the disciples. He Notice he doesn't make them work for it. He made the crowd work for the story that he told, the sermon. But he doesn't make the disciples work for it. He says, clearly... You have been given this gift. You get to know the secrets. You get to understand the interpretations. They don't. In fact, there are three key differences between the crowds and the disciples. And the first, he mentions here, to to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So the first difference is this distinction of knowledge. A disciple knows something, the crowds don't. And this knowledge is, in a sense, a gift. Jesus calls it a gift right here. It's not by their hard work, necessarily, that they understand Scripture. God has given them insight that he has not given the rest of the crowds. And this points to the second difference between the two of them. He says in verse 12, the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Has what? The one who has what? I think this has that he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit. Now this is obviously before... Pentecost, so we're going to say it's not the indwelling ministry of the Spirit, the way that we get to experience it as the church. But before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was still the one who worked in people's lives to help them understand Scripture and to live out according to its principles. And if we turn to 1 Corinthians 2, we see an illustration, a, a better explanation of the principle behind what Jesus is saying. First Corinthians chapter two. And I'll pick up in verse eleven. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, he's speaking to the church, this is us, we who have the Holy Spirit. We have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, in order to have this gift of knowledge that the disciples have, they first have to have the gift of the Holy Spirit. These spiritual things, and, and again, Jesus is speaking in parables to, to hide the spiritual truth, to disguise it, to, to create a barrier that needs to be crossed to really understand what's being said. We who have the Spirit can do that. 
we who have the Spirit can understand. Now, that might not exactly seem fair, but we'll come to see that there's a reason that the crowds don't hear, the reason that they are natural people. Um, But the third thing before we get to that that I want to note is that there's a result to this. The first difference is that they have knowledge that comes from the Spirit. That's the second difference. But then the result is they will grow in understanding. They will grow in knowledge. This is what it means to be a disciple. You get more and more. It's, It's a continued blessing that you receive. But those who don't have the Spirit, don't have knowledge, and even the knowledge they do have will amount to nothing. They'll be ruined. So the result is also very different between the two of them. So going back to Matthew 13, the disciples and the crowds very much look the same, but there are these key differences behind them. And Jesus says that these parables help reveal that difference. It helps reveal the difference between a disciple and the crowd. And Jesus likens his ministry here, in verse 14, to the ministry of Isaiah. Jesus is saying, I have the same mission that Isaiah had. God sent him out to preach to a people who weren't listening. I've always thought, what does... What a great job. What a fun world to be called to. I'm going to give you a message, but no one's going to be listening. Okay. Keep talking anyway. Okay. This is where Jesus is. He has the disciples. They're listening. But the people aren't listening. And he explains here why. In verse 15, this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. These aren't accidents of nature. These are choices that these people have made. This idea that their hearts have grown dull, they've become insensitive to the things of God. Through their choices, through their actions, through their lifestyles, they have separated themselves in their sin for being able to receive God's word. This is also, in other accounts, it makes it clear, this is akin to the idea of having a hardened heart. You're numb to the truth that you're hearing. This is what it means to be part of the crowd. They have made their own hearts dull. They have closed their eyes. Jesus is on display. He's, he's coming before them every day as a teacher and a healer. Someone who reveals the wisdom of God and loves the way God loves. But their eyes are closed. They can't see it. They can see it, but they don't get it. With their ears, they could barely hear. I don't know exactly how you'd parallel that, but... As, as time goes on, as life goes on, you know, you can make certain decisions that make your hearing grow deaf faster than others. And I think that's part of the sense that he's talking about here. They've, it's not just that they've stopped listening. They've deafened their own ears. Been listening to rock music just a little too loud for all these centuries. 
But they've put themselves in this state where they're stuck on the shore and they can't understand. This isn't that God has excluded them. They've excluded themselves. It's only by the gift of the Spirit that they can overcome this. It's only by the Spirit's work that they can move from being part of the crowd to being a disciple. But it's interesting, too, lest we think that we could just kind of lay back and receive God's word, and the Spirit will do all the work. In in Mark's account, Jesus is a little concerned that the disciples are even asking him. You've been with me all this time, and you, you have to ask me what this parable means? Matthew's point, I think, is that they are on the inside. They're the disciples. But Mark's point is, you've got to work for this, too. Just because you have the Spirit doesn't mean you're just automatically going to get it. You have to work to understand what God is saying. And the true disciple is willing to work for it. Able because of the Spirit, but diligent to study the Word. So the disciples hear all the same things that the crowd is hearing. But the crowd can't make sense of it because they don't have the Spirit and because they're not trying. And and this leads us from the difference between the crowds and the disciples to the difficulty of being a disciple-maker. And this is what I believe the parable of the sower is about. The difficulty of being a disciple-maker. Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Disciples have the Spirit. They're, they're working for it. They also have the blessing of being in that little sliver of history where Jesus is actually there. There's a problem of Access that they don't have to worry about. They have access to God. We've largely solved the problem of access in our time. Have you noticed this? You could just pick up a phone, push a few buttons, and have God's word at your fingertips at any point in time. Older generations, they had to go find an actual book and keep copies on the shelf, or maybe in a hotel room, And then you'd have access to God's word. But before the printing press, you have to have access to someone who can speak it to you in your language. We've worked diligently in the last 100, 150 years to translate the Bible into every language. The vast majority of the world has the ability to hear God's word in their language. The problem of access is solved. The problem that remains is this problem of hard hearts. It's not so easy. This is the world we live in. And so Jesus explains this is what's happening when people, who even though they have access to the word, they don't get it. There are three things that he points to as problems that are in the way that make it difficult to be a disciple maker. The first of these, of course, is this lack of understanding. And again, I think this is the whole point of this passage. Here are the crowds. They can't understand. They're hearing, but they just don't understand. They are the people on the path. You know what difference it makes 
being the people hearing the word and the people under the control of Satan, there's really no difference there. They have access to the word, but because it can't take root, because they won't do the work, because they have not submitted themselves to the Spirit of God, it's not going to produce any fruit. Satan comes and takes away what was sown, and in essence, they still belong to him. That's this first problem. Now, one thing I want to make clear is that sometimes we talk about the parable of the sower, and we get a few things confused, I think. Um, A lot of times I've heard this parable preached as a check your heart to see what kind of soil you are. Um, Or even I've heard one person challenge me on this and say, well, this parable is proof that you can lose your salvation. Look what happens to the word, you fall away. A couple of things to note here. The word of the kingdom is the seed. It's different from your salvation. That's the message of salvation. It's what God uses to save you. It's not salvation. So, when the word is taken away from these people, it's proof that they're not saved, that they don't have the spirit. If they had the spirit, it would sink down the roots. It would produce fruit in their lives. And that is the biblical definition of salvation. My favorite place to look for that is Ephesians 2. By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a gift from God. Not by works, lest any man should boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for us to do. It's salvation not by works, it's by grace through faith, but it's for works. Biblical salvation should produce what is called here, fruit. And so, you're saved for good works. Biblical salvation, true faith, will eventually show up and result in good works. That's that's the proof that comes. And so, as you hear these words... I hope you're not challenged into thinking, maybe I'm not saved. I hope you're not nervous. I hope you can rest in God's salvation by grace through faith. I love the way one of my professors put it. He said, it's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. If the object of your faith is Jesus Christ, then even that little mustard seed faith is enough because he is the strong one. He is the one who holds us up. So understand what the seed is. And Another thing that's interesting is I've heard a lot of people talk about this parable as though it's the parable of the soils. And I've even seen famous people repackage this as the parable of the soils. I did a quick search online and very reputable scholars with their websites call it the parable of the soils. I don't see that term in scripture. And normally I wouldn't care so much, but Jesus calls it the parable of the sower. If Jesus has already named it, I don't know why we need to rename it. I think there's a reason he calls it the parable of the sower. I think the sower is part of the message. And I think that's why this is about disciple-making. The parable of the sower, the parable of the disciple-maker, the one who spreads God's word. This is the parable about the one doing the work, 
not so much about the one receiving. And so, as the disciples go out, this is the world they're going into. You're going to be spreading the word, and some people are not going to be listening. You might get crowds of thousands of people to hear you. But don't be surprised when the devil snatches away the word and there's no fruit because they're not listening, because they don't have the ability to hear. They don't understand. If you recall, I think it's Mark's version of this passage was the greatest commandment. The list differs a little bit. I like Mark's version best because it includes the mind. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That word for mind is the same word used here for understanding. You will love the Lord with all of your understanding. Salvation, your worship to God, includes your mind, your ability to follow him, to accept his word. So the first problem is a lack of understanding. The second one, if, if you want to put this maybe in sociological terms, we could talk about push factors and pull factors, why someone moves from one place to another. There are two examples of people that look like they're saved, but they're not really. And again, I say not really because of what we just discussed. They look like they're saved, but there's one kind of person who gets really excited about the gospel. Who hears it and says, yeah, sign me up. I'm ready for that. I don't know if you know any of those people. There are certain people who are just kind of easily excitable. And they hear the Bible and, yeah, that, that's my next thing. And it's important, he, he repeats the word immediately. This person jumps in. And immediately, when persecution comes, they run away. Just as fast as they came to Christ, they run away from him. That's not a mark of a true disciple. But there's this problem, we'll call it a, the push factor, the problem of persecution, the problem of trials. You see, there are people who look like they understand, but when persecution comes, it reveals who they really are. True faith will withstand persecution. But for this kind of person, we realize that the, the roots really just weren't there. The spirit wasn't really there. I think about, as I read that part of the story, I, I think about Peter. Was Peter one of these people? I mean, when Jesus came and called him out of the boat, Peter's like, all right, sign me up. I will be a disciple. I'll jump right in. And, and we see over and over again, he... He's kind of that person who puts his foot in his mouth and just jumps in without thinking, without processing. Um, I feel like Peter and I would take a while to kind of mesh if we were on a team together. <laughs> it just jumps right in without thinking. And Peter is the one that's on display in Scripture as when persecution comes, he falls away. When they ask him, when Jesus has been taken, he's on trial and he's outside, and, and they ask him, aren't you with Jesus? He says, no, no, that's not me. In fact, in Mark's account of it, 
I think it's fascinating. He says, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. I'm just a part of the crowd. Was Peter rocky soil? No. And we know that because what happens next. If you're rocky soil, you don't come back. Peter came back. You see, each of us, as we go through life, we're going to have those times where we fall down. We're going to have those times where we disappoint ourselves, our loved ones, where we disappoint God. That's not proof that you're not saved. You get back up and you try again. That's the proof. Sin can't keep you down. Persecution can't keep you down. No matter how many times you get knocked down, you get back up. And that's Peter's example to us. This is not a type of failure in the sense of not a type of unbelief. This is a type of faith. It's the faith that gets back up again. Not rocky soil. But then there's this third kind of soil. This may be your your pull factors, if you want to call it that. These are the people who... Persecution is not so much the problem. The problem is everything else in the world that's calling their name. And in America, this is more likely to be the kind of soil that we find as we go out. Because there's not a lot of persecution here. Some may be coming. Some of it's happening maybe in certain circles or certain geographic areas. But we are flush with money and all kinds of things to spend money on. I don't want to exactly pick on the cell phone, but but if you think about it, how many of you have a cell phone? 20 years ago, how many of you had a cell phone? (laughs) Much fewer of us. You might have had a phone bill, but... Now we've got a data plan, now we've got all these other things, and now we have the burden of paying for this extra thing that we didn't know we needed, but now we need it. And that's just one little thing, and I'm not picking on cell phones. Cell phones are helpful, they're useful. Again, you can read God's Word on it, among many other things. Not get lost in upstate New York. Um, There are all kinds of good things that you can do with the cell phone, but it's this gadget that, if we're not careful, can draw us away. If we're not careful, like so many other things in our lives, we're surrounded by things that we can chase after instead of God. And as we go to chase after them, we find, well, if only I had more money, I could have more stuff. If only I could have more money, I could not have this problem. And this desire for money, which is the deceitfulness of, deceitfulness of riches, as a way out of the cares of the world, or the worries of life, These are the things that draw us away in our culture. Jesus said no one can serve two masters. And he's specifically talking about the allure of money to pull people away. You have to choose. And these people are the ones who never really chose. They looked like they understood, but the love of money was too strong. They didn't really love Christ more. And there's another disciple I think about when I think about this kind of soil. Think about Judas. I think, 
I have no reason not to believe Judas walked across the water to the boat to ask what this parable meant. He looks like he's not a part of the crowd. He looks like he's a disciple. But when the testing comes, we see that he's not. He's someone who we find throughout the story liked to help himself to the money. He embezzled from Jesus. Think about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, some people might be guilty of, of one sin or another. But yeah, I embezzled from God in person. Not looking good. And at the end, of course, the thing he's most famous for is selling Jesus for money. 30, 30 pieces of silver? Was that all? I don't know. how I've never held 30 pieces of silver. Maybe it's pretty magical when it's in a bag in front of you, but that's all it takes to sell Jesus up the river. Judas's priorities are wrong. His master was not truly Christ. His master was money. And it proved that he was indeed thorny soil. He did not produce fruit. He did not evidence true faith in his life. And this is the kind of person that we need to especially look out for in our world because of the culture that we live in. Now, so far, I've talked about the parable of the sower from this idea of the person making disciples. And Ephesians 4 says, well, God gave the church apostles, teachers, pastors, evangelists. These are the kinds of people that you would expect to be the sowers, right? Why did he give the church these people? Ephesians 4 says it's to equip the church for the work of the ministry. You may not be a teacher here this morning, although many of you are. You may not be an evangelist or an apostle in this... Well, nobody's an apostle. We won't get into that. Um, you may not be a pastor. You may not have these other gifts to set you apart from other people. But if you are in Christ this morning, you are a minister. And you bear some part of spreading this good news. You are a sower. You may not be a professional sower. You may not be the person that we put on a pedestal and say, so like this person. But you are a sower. And so as you go out into the world, this is your application. Understand, you have this word to spread. And you will get mixed results. But don't be discouraged. So did Jesus. If people would not listen to Jesus, don't be surprised when they won't listen to you. Because that's the world we live in. Some people won't understand. Some people will look like they understand, but they won't stand up to the pressure. Some people will look like they understand, but they won't be willing to give up other things in order to truly be a disciple of Christ. They'll be led astray. But the results are not the measure of how well you're doing the work. That's a trap we fall into. Well, we got so many results, there's so many hands raised, therefore, this is a good sower. The good sower is the one who shares the message. 
Whose responsibility is it to bring fruit? Whose responsibility is it to prepare the soil? Maybe that's a little too iffy. It's, it's both. Whose responsibility is it to make sure that they understand? Can you make people understand your message? If anyone could have, Jesus could have. They need the Spirit. And ultimately, as we go out and we spread the news of the gospel, as we understand that there are mixed results out there, the key to seeing lives changed is the work of the Holy Spirit. And so the more important thing, I mean, the word has to go out. It's a very important thing. But along with it, the most important task we have as believers is to pray that the Spirit would move. I don't know why God listens to us. He knows so much better than we do. But he's promised he does. He acts based on what we ask of him. What a humbling and terrifying thought. If he has sent us out, you and me both, to share this message, we should also be diligent to pray that he would send his spirit, that he would prepare the people to hear this message, that they would bring fruit. For those of you who are in Christ, this is your your application. But also, I, I don't want to miss this point here. If you're in Christ, you are the good soil. You're bringing up fruit in your life. I love that Jesus makes a point of saying, some people will have a harvest of 30, some 50, some 100. Even among believers, we get mixed results. That's okay. We do our best, and we... I think the most important point here is don't compare. If you're 30 and you want to be 100, great. Don't compare yourself to the hundreds and look down on yourself. Don't don't compare one person to another and say, well, this is the good harvest and this is a mediocre harvest. If you're bearing fruit, you're part of the good seed. You're part of the good soil. You're part of the harvest. Um, Take comfort in that. If this morning you're not sure, for whatever reason, that you are this good soil, then you have an opportunity. The Holy Spirit is at work right now, and you can, after hearing this message, put your faith in Christ. And if you're not sure that you ever did, it's okay. You can do that now and then be sure. (laughs) It's never too late to put your faith in Christ as long as you're alive. Receive the word and become a disciple. And watch out for these traps. Work to understand. Work to persevere. Work to give God primacy in your heart over money and anything else that would compete. So as we look at this holiday season, as we go out and we sing the Christmas songs and we hear them abused in commercials and other places, understand the word is going out and you get to be a part of helping it go out and pray that God's word would bring fruit. And do what you can this holiday season to make the most of the opportunities you get to be a sower. Trust the results to God. Let's pray. (laughs) 
Heavenly Father, what an awesome task you've given us. Thank you so much for listening to us. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for receiving our worship. Thank you for accepting us as your children. God, we pray that we would be people who not only bear good fruit, but that we would be sowers this season. That we would be diligent to share your good news, who your son is, that he died for us, that he rose again, that he's coming back. And that we can have salvation in him. And we pray that your spirit would move, that the people in our culture, in our towns, when they hear the word, that they would receive it. That they would also join the disciples and leave the crowd. God, we pray this not just for our nation, not just for ourselves, but for you and for your glory. May you be magnified in our country. And Father, we ask this by the Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.